0: I want to know what your picture of paradise is. What images come to mind when you hear the word paradise? And we put the Indian food down the road out of our mind. I know that's good and cheap Indian food. But when you think about paradise, what images come for you? I'll show you a couple of images that come to mind for me with paradise. First one up on the screen. A beautiful rolling barreling wave. My paradise is probably a right-hander rather than a left-hander, but left handers are a good as well. The sun is shining, the water is warm, it's not too hot, it's not too cold. We're picturing the sun in the sky, that for me is paradise. And then it gets to night time and you've got a fire on the beach, oh we've lost the, the slides now as well, i just have to describe it in beautiful language. It gets to night time and, and the waves have died down, the sun's gone down but it's a beautiful clear starry night sky, you've lit a fire on the beach, got a few good friends around there you go paradise right that's that's my picture of paradise perhaps for some of you though you're more city dwellers and you need the people around you need the busy streets the culture the music perhaps even this next photo is your picture of paradise oh Auckland city (laughs) paradise right Uh, it is a beautiful city you're pointing at me now do I I still need the handheld no all right we're back on Uh, I don't know if this is your picture of paradise, it is a beautiful city, but unfortunately all these places on earth, there is no place that really is paradise. Paradise was lost to us when our first parents, Adam and Eve, shook their puny fists in rebellion against God. They broke just one rule, but in that act they showed that they didn't trust the God who had given them everything. They wanted to be God themselves. They wanted to be autonomous, self-ruling, independent. we're much like them, aren't we? And since that first day of rebellion against God, human relationships have been broken. Instead of paradise, we get envy, jealousy, strife, anger, adultery, lies, violence, murder. We feel the brokenness of the world. We contribute to the brokenness of the world. And no matter where we travel, no matter how hard we try to isolate ourselves to escape from this broken world, we can't do it. We won't find lasting bliss. We can't find paradise. We can't manufacture paradise. Paradise is lost. But then we come here today and we hear in the midst of this sad reality some really good news. Some great words of promise. I wonder if you heard it as Matt read the scriptures for us in verse 43. I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Friends, today, this morning, God is offering us paradise. Never-ending joy. Everlasting peaceful relationships. Complete eternal satisfaction. God is inviting us this morning to eternal bliss. Now, do you want that? I think, of course, we do, don't we? I'm pretty keen for some paradise. I'm pretty sick of this world in its brokenness, of having to strive so hard to get peace. I'd love a bit of paradise. Now, at this point, all the religions step in and every religion across the world is offering some form of paradise and all the religions out there come with their short set of rules. They say, if, if you conduct, you know, this little set of religious rituals, if you pay this much money, then you can have paradise. And perhaps that's what you're coming, expecting to hear this morning from Jesus. Perhaps you're coming and thinking, well, Christianity, that's just like all those religions, isn't it? Keep this set of rules and then you'll have paradise. But no, unlike all of those false religions, the one true path to paradise, it's not paved with good works or religious rituals. You can't buy your way in with charity or by being a good citizen. The path to paradise is in fact a person, Jesus. See, it's Jesus who speaks these words in verse 43. He's hanging there on that Roman cross. His life is flowing out from him. He's got really just a few more hours to live and at this point, Jesus tells us he's going to paradise and he tells the man next to him that he's going to join him in paradise. A profound moment. And so this morning we want to look at this man that Jesus is speaking to. What is it about this man that means he can get to paradise with Jesus? Jump back up to verse 32. If you've got the Bible open there with you, it'd be good to follow along there. We're going to particularly focus in on just a few verses And you also should have an outline where you might like to write down notes as we go along. You'll see what we're going to see about this man that Jesus is speaking to. But come with me to verse 32. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with Jesus. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. As the story goes on, we find that everyone around is mocking Jesus, scoffing at him, pretending that he is this king that he's claimed to be and mocking him as though he should be able to save himself if he can save everyone else. One of the criminals dying alongside Jesus joins in in that mockery in verse 39. One of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And then we meet the second criminal. He goes against the flow of everyone else at the scene. It's this second criminal who will hear Jesus' promise for paradise. There are five things that this criminal does that show his attitude towards Jesus. It's the same attitude that we all have to have if we're to inherit paradise with him. The first thing we notice about this second criminal is that he fears God. Verse 40, but the other criminal answered rebuking him, don't you even fear God since we're undergoing the same punishment? See, this is a man who knows that he has been created. He knows that he is not God himself, but that there's an almighty creator, one who is ruler over all. Now it's appropriate that creatures bow in submission before their creator. It's appropriate that creatures subject all their life to the wisdom of the one who made them. The right fear of God, it's, it's like the right fear of the ocean. If you head down to Pihar on a day when it's not beautiful curling left-hand barrels, but on a day when it's like normal Pihar and a bit messy and mucky and there's rips heading everywhere, if you head down to Pihar in a day like that and you don't have a respect for the ocean and you just jump on in, you're going to get yourself into trouble. There's a right fear to the ocean. If you jump into the open ocean on a five-meter swell, then you're likely to drown and die. The ocean has power. It is to be feared. The power of God towers over the power of the ocean. It is God who tells the ocean where its limits are, who says to the ocean, you can go this far but no further. The Creator God, it is right to fear Him to acknowledge His might and to submit to His rule. I wonder this morning, do you fear God? Do you recognize that He is so much bigger, so much mightier, with so much more authority than you? If not, then I want you to see that you're like a little ant that's crawling along at the base of Mount Everest, trying to say to Mount Everest, oh, get out of the way, just flatten yourself out so that I can walk across. We are small in comparison to our Creator. Fear God. The second thing that this criminal does is recognize his guilt. Verse 41. We are punished justly. He's speaking to himself and the other criminal that's dying there. We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things that we did. This is a man who knows that he has done the wrong thing. He's been convicted as guilty before the laws of the land and he's guilty before the God that he fears. Now, some of us here this morning know all too well that we are guilty before God. And you don't need me to convince you of that for many of us. You, you feel it in your conscience. You know the lies that you've told. You know the pain that you've caused. You know the blasphemy that you've uttered. And you come this morning feeling that weight of guilt on your shoulders. See this criminal. He's committed some crime worthy of the death penalty and yet notice that for him there was forgiveness enough from Jesus. And so there can be forgiveness today even for those who we find in our prisons. Forgiveness for rapists, murderers, fraudsters. Forgiveness even for you. Christianity is not just for the supposedly moral middle class, who aren't any more moral than any others. We just hide it better. Christianity is not just for the moral middle class. Jesus is the friend of sinners. And as he offers forgiveness to this thief on the cross, we see that in a single instant, in one act, the sins of 60 or 70 years can be forgiven. There is no one excluded from the infinite mercy of Jesus, however great your sin is as you come this morning. If you're here and you're feeling like your sin is too great for God, if you feel like he could never forgive you, please notice this criminal dying next to Jesus and yet entering into paradise. Know that Jesus will not refuse to associate with you Now, I'm sure there are others here this morning who feel like you've got no guilt, no guilt before God, no account to to answer for, no need for forgiveness. If that's you, well, I reckon if we were to put up on the screen right now just a movie of your life, playing through every single instance from birth till now, and not just showing everything that you've done, but all the thoughts running through your head from birth until now. I dare say you wouldn't want us all to see that. (laughs) You might at first instinct think you're not guilty, that you have nothing to answer for. And yet as we cast our minds back across our lives, we, we do know there are things that we've done that we're ashamed of, things that we don't want others to know about, thoughts that we've had of anger, thoughts that we've had where we've maybe even thought of adultery. There are things that you don't want people to know about you. God has seen all of that. God has seen every instance of your life. He knows. He's heard every word. He's read every thought. You and I, we're all guilty before God. We all deserve hell. But this criminal admits his wrong, and that's a step towards paradise with Jesus. If we admit our wrong. We're on our way to entering paradise with Jesus. So, the criminal, he fears God. He recognizes his guilt. And thirdly, he acknowledges Jesus' innocence. Notice the end of verse 41. He says, This man has done nothing wrong. In contrast to these two criminals that have been crucified, one on the right and one on the left of Jesus, they, they were guilty, they were criminals. But Jesus wasn't. If you've been with us across the last few weeks as we've looked through Luke's narrative of Jesus' life and death, we've, we've seen Jesus' innocence declared so clearly. The governing courts, they recognised Jesus had done nothing wrong, nothing deserving of death. Jesus at this point, unlike the criminals, Jesus is not dying for his own misdeeds. Jesus is a good man, a righteous man. Indeed, he's the perfect man. He's not just innocent of some particular crime here. He has been completely innocent across his whole life. As the perfect man, Jesus is fulfilling the life that the first man, Adam, was meant to live. Where Adam was cast out of paradise for rebelling against God, now Jesus, the new Adam, the true Adam, is reopening the gate to paradise re-entering in where Adam was cast out. There's no one else in history like Jesus. He only does what is good. He only speaks the truth. This man, Jesus, is worthy of our faith, our allegiance, our imitation. And now comes the most amazing statement from the criminal alongside Jesus. Have a look at verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Fearing God, recognizing his guilt, acknowledging Jesus' innocence, this criminal now acknowledges Jesus' kingship. This is extraordinary. Do you see what Jesus looks like at this moment in time? He is stripped naked, beaten bloody, hanging on a Roman cross, being mocked by everyone else at the scene, he's only got a few more hours to live. And at this point, at this very moment, the criminal thinks that Jesus is going to have a kingdom? What faith! What an extraordinary statement. Jesus' close friends, the disciples that have been walking with Jesus throughout his earthly life, they've fled the scene at this point. They've given up hope. They thought Jesus was going to be a king, but now as they've watched him betrayed and arrested and died, they've given up their hope. And yet here hangs a criminal, clinging to the hope that for Jesus, death will not be the end. That for Jesus, beyond death, comes authority over all of heaven, all of earth. This man, this most unlikely character, has recognized who Jesus is. And it's not enough, you realise, to think that Jesus is just some good man. Now, Jesus is a good man, that's true. He is a good teacher. He's taught values and morals that will benefit human society if we follow them. But that is not all that he is. Jesus is a king. And paradise is his kingdom. Paradise is Jesus' realm over which he will rule for all eternity. It's not enough to think that Jesus is some prophet sent by God to speak God's Word. That too is true of Jesus. He is a prophet, but he is more than a prophet. Jesus is the King of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. Before Jesus, one day, every knee is going to bow. Before Jesus, one day, you will bow, either willingly or unwillingly. It's as king over paradise that Jesus has the authority to say, today you will be with me in paradise. Those are the words of the king who is deciding who will be with him and who will not. In Jesus' word there is power. And when we talk about Jesus as a king, I think sometimes it's hard for us because we don't have too many kings around today. We, We struggle with the idea of kingly power and authority. That's why we've moved towards democracy. We've seen too many bad kings. People who, when they've been given all the authority, they just use it for themselves. People who, as kings, get rich off the people that they're meant to be looking after. They oppress the people around them and take away their money to puff up their own kingdom. That's what we've seen of kings. And so we we spread the power thinly. We spread it amongst the democracy, amongst various leaders. Leaders who we think, well, if they've got limited power, they'll be able to do limited damage. Damage. And yet even within democracy, we recognize that our leaders have flaws, don't they? They're not perfect. We recognize that the human heart is corrupt, and that whenever someone has some power, that corruption materializes. And so we don't like kings. It's risky to have a king. But notice that Jesus is not corrupt. Jesus is not the kind of king that we have to be worried about. Jesus is not the kind of king who gets rich at your expense. He's not the kind of king that's going to put you down to get himself up. As Jesus dies here on the cross, he is at his kingly best. Here, Jesus is not the king who's just fighting on the front line for his people. Jesus is rather the king who has stepped forward to fight solo, to be the hero that will take on our enemies and defeat them. I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of a whipping boy. Does that term mean anything to you? It's a bit of an old-fashioned term. The idea was that when there were kings and princes around or different dynasties of empires, uh, that the princes wouldn't get punished themselves because they were royal and so the tutor who was educating them didn't have the authority to punish them. They were subservient to the prince, so they couldn't whip the prince himself. And so the prince would have a whipping boy educated alongside him, so that when the prince did something wrong, when the prince was naughty, instead of the prince getting whipped, the whipping boy would get whipped instead. Though he had done nothing wrong, he was a substitute for the prince. And that's kind of the picture that we have of kings trying to put others down and and take out their anger on others, but notice with Jesus, we're not his whipping boy, he has stepped in to be ours. As he dies there on the cross, he's taking the punishment that you and I deserve. Jesus is a good king, the king who has given up his life so that we might have life. He's a king of compassion, a king of kindness and mercy and forgiveness and generosity and love. Friends, Jesus is a king worth following, he's the only king worth following. And this kind of king, well, his kingdom is truly paradise. To live under his rule for all eternity, that will be bliss. So we've seen the criminal on the cross, fearing God, recognizing his own guilt, and then acknowledging Jesus' innocence, acknowledging Jesus' kingship. And finally, in light of all of this, the last thing the criminal does is plead for help. I mean, that's what he's doing in verse 42. He's crying out for help, saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The criminal here has no bargaining chip. He's not offering Jesus anything in return. I mean, he has nothing to offer in return. He's got no money. He can't offer up some list of good deeds. If salvation was to come from doing good works, then this criminal is stuffed, isn't he? He's bound at the moment, hand and foot, he's dying alongside Jesus. He doesn't say to Jesus, Alright, alright, just um can you let me down from the cross for a little bit? I need to go get baptized. Like if I'm not baptised, then I can't get in. He doesn't say, Oh, I haven't given my tithe to church this week. I've got to get down off the cross, I've got to go and make sure the money gets there. No, this man, he hasn't been a good citizen at all. He's been a criminal. He deserves the death penalty that he's receiving all he can do is plead for mercy, plead for help, ask for forgiveness. All he can do is look at Jesus, the King of Paradise, and ask Jesus to look on him with favour. And that's the kind of plea that Jesus responds to in verse 43, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Notice that Jesus says, today... Uh, it's not like this criminal has to now go to purgatory for ages. He's ready for paradise at once. If you have believed in Jesus, you are prepared for heaven. Now, it may be that God gives you another 20 or 30 or 40 years to live on earth and be thankful for that opportunity to glorify Jesus in those years. But if you don't live another hour, then your death wouldn't change the fact that if you've believed in Jesus, you are ready at that moment for heaven. If anything beyond faith is needed to make us ready to enter paradise, the criminal would have been kept longer on earth. But all this criminal has done is offer one genuine, heartfelt plea, alongside an omission of guilt and an acknowledgement of Jesus' kingship. And at that point, he is saved ready for paradise. As we go on in the Christian life, I wonder if you've noticed this about yourself, I have to fight against this tendency. As we go on in the Christian life, we can start to think that we are somehow adding to our resume that we'll present to God on entry to heaven. You know, here God, here's here's my list of service. Here's all my good works that I've done. Uh, You know, in, in the year 2000, I brought morning tea to church. Uh, And then I prayed up front from 2001 to 2003. In 2010, I led EV Kids. Uh, Oh, there was this one moment in 2008 where I spoke to that awkward person at church. Put that one on there. Uh, And then from 2000 to 2018, I gave my money. I'm like, here God, here's my resume. Let me in. But friends, these things contribute nothing to our salvation. Not a bit, not even half a percent. Jesus and Jesus alone is the path to paradise, 100%. To try to add anything to his free offer of welcome is to exalt ourselves in his presence and offend his generosity. It's like proudly offering five cents to the person that's just given you keys to an Auckland house. We'd all love keys to an Auckland house these days. They're hard to get. And if I try to say to that person, oh, thanks so much, look, here's five cents, as if that's somehow repaying, that's offensive. we are saved by Jesus freely, as a gift. As Jesus declares of us sinners, today you will be with me in paradise. Now there might be some amongst us who hear this and you're saying to yourself, oh, wonderful, so I can be saved at the last hour. I'm going to put off repentance and faith, I'll turn back to God and be forgiven on my deathbed. well, you're right, you could do that. If a deathbed confession is sincere and you die five minutes after your first act of faith, you are just as safe as if you'd served the Lord for 50 years. That's the reality of God's grace. That's the reality of the freedom of his offer into paradise. But I want to say, if that's what you're thinking today, don't be a fool. Don't be ungrateful because God is kind. Don't provoke the Lord because he's patient. And don't run an awful risk just because one person escaped tremendous peril. I mean, how do you know that on your deathbed you'll be like the forgiven criminal that we've been looking at rather than like the first criminal who continued his way of life and as he approached death continued to mock Jesus and blaspheme him? How do you know that in that instant you'll be like the one that turns to Jesus for forgiveness? Or how even do you know that you will not die this afternoon? There's a sobering reality. We're not in control of life. Death comes any instant. Today is the day to turn to Jesus and plead for his help. Today is the day to be asking for forgiveness. Don't put it off. Say sorry to God today and ask Jesus to remember you in his kingdom. Ask Jesus to welcome you into paradise, though you do not deserve it. Friends, with Jesus, the paradise that we lost has been regained. We long for paradise. We chase after it on our holidays. We try to manufacture it in our homes, our parties, our escapes but paradise is not to be found or made on this earth. And perhaps you are quite eager for your next holiday because you think that that will be paradise. You're saving up money for it. You're looking forward to it so intently, escaping the daily grind. Perhaps you're even jealous of your friends that have gone away this long weekend. Like, Man, I wish I was away from the rainy weather of Auckland and enjoying somewhere with beautiful waves. And there is normally good swell around the Easter weekend, so the surf will be good. Perhaps you're jealous of your friends that are away enjoying that. But I want us to recognize that at best, these things, these holidays, these escapes, at best they're a foretaste, a little sample of the heavenly rest and paradise that is coming beyond death. And at worst, our manufactured paradises are fake imitations that actually distract us from the true prize. So don't be like that first criminal this morning who, if you notice, he just wanted Jesus' help to get down off the cross. He just wanted to go on enjoying his earthly pleasure. But instead, I want to urge us to be like that second criminal, recognizing the paradise to come, recognizing that paradise is only to be found beyond the grave. The road there will be marked, likely with mockery and suffering and shame. But as we join that second criminal swimming against the chiron of all those who reject Jesus, as we fear God, as we recognize our own guilt, as we acknowledge Jesus' innocence, acknowledge His kingship, as we plead for help, then we can look forward to a certain hope of true paradise, the companionship of our King, life forever with the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place to regain the paradise that we lost. Now, as you close, I want to introduce you to someone who made that decision to turn and put their trust in Jesus a few years ago. So, make Ethan feel welcome as he comes up. Hi, hey, Ethan, welcome. Hey, thanks. Uh, we met you earlier up front presenting the kids talk for us. So, you've been out hanging out with the kids this morning, but I wanted to get you back in and tell us a bit of your story in coming to know Jesus, because you haven't always been a Christian. Uh, how many years have you been a Christian?
1: Yeah, the, it's a little bit blurry, like in terms of when exactly I, I truly repented and put my faith in Jesus, but somewhere around five years, after, shortly after coming along to EV. Okay, yeah. so
0: about five years ago, you became a Christian. Now, what was life like
1: before then? Yeah, so before I became a Christian, I my life was marked by like all sorts of sin. I would have called myself a Christian, surprisingly, but... Um, But a very brief examination of how I lived, you would have discerned very quickly that I wasn't a Christian. The the main ways that expressed itself was kind of in, like, violence and anger. Mm -hmm. Um, After my dad died when I was 15, I kind of just reveled in, like, getting into fights at school, even after school, um, started uni. That's what my life was like. And I just, like, if you ask me, like, what are you good at in this world? You asked me six years ago, I would have said, ah, oh, the one thing I'm good at is, is like, fighting people, and I did lots of, like, yeah, like, I did lots of shameful things, like, um, things I'm not proud of, um, yeah, so me and my brothers were, like, involved in, like, kidnapping a guy who kind of stole something from us, and mm. taking him for a ride, be- like, beating him up, like, all sorts of shameful things like that. And I, I, that was what my identity was. I thought that was who I am. I'm the guy who can fight. Like, we grew up doing boxing as our main sport, mm. and that was who I was. So, yeah, that's what life was like for mm. me, just living how I, how I pleased, doing what I wanted. Mm. For me, that looked like violence and mm. just whatever else mm. I felt like doing. Yeah. Now,
0: in case you're worried that this guy's out with our kids now, it's okay, he's changed. <laughs> we, we love him, we trust him. He's a reformed man. Uh, and so tell us a bit about that change because we've been looking at the criminal on the cross and it sounds like you would have come to recognize similarly to this criminal that you were guilty before god but what was that journey like how how did you come to recognize that what Mm. what changed for you five years ago
1: yeah so my my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife uh, naomi invited me along to ev and the sermon series had just started in the book of romans Mm. and and as some of you might know, the first three chapters of Romans just really emphasizes sin. And I remember, I don't remember so much the content of exactly what was said, but I remember after sitting in that first sermon feeling like, it feels like this guy's just said I'm not a Christian. Like, I think I am. Like, what's this guy talking about? So I came back the next week, in chapter 2, of course, has the whole idea of those who have the Word of God but don't live by it. And just increases that condemnation. And I remember feeling like, man, this guy is saying that I'm under God's wrath right now. I'm under God's anger. And somewhere around that time, I came to the realization that, like, yeah, I've offended a holy God. Hmm. And God could rightly send me to hell. Hmm. And I'd have I, no, no qualms. Like, there's no argument I could put to God as to why he should let me into heaven. And, and Romans is just great for cutting off every way you try and turn. You're like, oh, but I do good things. It's not good enough. There's no one who does good. Oh, but but God will just forgive me. God is just. And I remember feeling the weight of that. And then, of course, in chapter 3, you, you see Jesus and the glory of his gospel that it's by faith alone that man is made right before God. And I remember it was like a there was like a sort of light bulb moment somewhere around there where I realised like, man, it's it's by faith alone, it's not by me being good enough or me doing enough. It's all by God's grace through faith alone. Mm. And somewhere around that time I, I, I put my trust in Jesus and and decided that He was King and so my only hope really, I realised how, how deep my sin was, how severe it was in the eyes of God. And my only hope was to say, God, please just forgive me. Yeah. Let, let Jesus' death be my death, his resurrection mine. Yeah. I, I have no hope apart from that. Um, and I think we're all in the same boat. When we realize the weight of sin before God, and there's nowhere else you can turn. You can't mm-hmm. turn to your good works or, or your kindness or serving at church. None of that mm-hmm. is enough. Uh, to take away the wrong we've done before mm-hmm. God. And that was the realisation. That, that was, for me, what was so striking yeah. and has captured me for five years now. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And you can hear in that
0: just the things that we've seen throughout the passage this morning. A, a fear of God, a recognition of guilt, and I'm sure for you there would have been a great sense of forgiveness for some of that guilt that you carried from your first 15, 18 years of life. Yeah. And then a plea t- to Jesus to forgive. A plea that says, i got nothing. Just need Jesus to help and invite me into paradise. I want not you grab a seat and I want to close us now by offering a, a chance for all of us to respond to God in prayer. A prayer that's good to say every day as we recognize our ongoing sin, but a prayer that's particularly good to say. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, all right, I've heard enough about Jesus and I recognize that I stand before a holy God and that I should fear him, I recognize that I'm guilty and I want to ask Jesus to welcome me into paradise. So it's a simple prayer that just says, sorry. Sorry, God, for not treating you as God with the right fear and submission. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place and offering me a path to salvation. And thirdly, please. Please remember me, Jesus, in your kingdom. Sorry, thanks, please. I'm going to pray something along those lines. Uh, you might like to later on today put that in your own words, to say sorry for the particular things that you want to say sorry to God for. Uh, Thank Him in your own words and express what you're thankful for and ask Him in your own words to remember you in His kingdom. But I'm going to pray now, and if that's something that you want to echo today, just pray along with me in your mind. I'll say amen at the end and we'll move on with some singing. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are our Maker, and we are sorry that we've not treated you as we should, that we've not respected you as God. Sorry that we've tried to be God ourselves. Thank you. Thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus. To die in our place. Thank you that in his death, our punishment has been completely paid. Lord Jesus, please remember us in paradise. Please forgive us. Please cleanse us. Please welcome us into your kingdom. Amen.